So we're going to continue our look at Philippians 2. Before I read the text to you this morning, let me uh, pray and uh, ask God to help us uh, to hear and uh, uh, respond. Uh, this is a great passage, very hard-hitting passage, and so we should pray before we look into it. So join me now in prayer. Father, we come to you uh, thanking you uh, that you see our weakness, you see our struggle, you hear us, uh, you know us, and you're near to us. Lord, we're tempted and tried in so many ways, uh, and so I pray that you would reassure us today in the midst of our trials, in the midst of our temptations, uh, to um, know that you are for us and that you're with us. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So Philippians 2, 14 through 16, uh, in the bulletin up on the screens behind me. This is God's word. We should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So in this great hymn that we've been looking at over the last several weeks of Paul saying uh, to this church that is about to uh, tear itself apart, the, the disagreements and the issues that uh, they're struggling with, um, he reminds the church of the work of Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ, that though he was with God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. And he wants us to have that same mind, right? And so last week we, we looked at how that happens as we work out our salvation as a community together. And then to, today he's going to say some very specific things about what that looks like for uh, the church. And this, this first, it's a very hard-hitting passage, right? Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Uh, when um, uh, I was young, my grandfather, my dad's dad, uh, um, was an interesting guy. Uh, he lived in a house that never had running water, never had electricity, didn't have a floor in the kitchen, it had a dirt floor. Uh, I remember him very well because he would take his false teeth out and chase me when I was little, clacking them at me. Uh, which is a pretty terrifying thing for like a three-year-old, you know. Um, yeah, he was an interesting guy. Uh, he had a stroke uh, in his mid-70s, and uh, my dad was with him, took him, was with him uh, after he had recovered from the stroke and was visiting with his doctor. And his doctor, like, when you have a stroke, you get better, and then you have to change your lifestyle. Right? So... You, you know, particularly you can't eat as much salt or fat, which in East Tennessee, Appalachia, you know, that's two of the four food groups. <laughs> right. And so the doctor said to my grandfather in front of my dad, now, Mr. Shelby, you you can't eat bacon. Now, my grandfather didn't call it bacon. He called it streaked meat. And so he said to the doctor, well, if I can't eat my streaked meat, I don't want to live. Um, he went on to live several more years eating his streaked meat stubbornly. But I wonder if for some of us to hear this word, do all things without grumbling 
or complaining that we might say, if I can't grumble and complain, I don't want to live. Because a big part of my life is grumbling and complaining. Just think how much in, in the last week you grumbled and complained about the people you in your family that you work with in your neighborhood that you're roommates with that you date that are your leaders people you go to church with people you're in small groups with right it's a it's a pretty profound thing for us to think about that so much of our time and energy and thinking is often uh, criti- critical and uh, corrective of uh, the people around us, right? And so it is, it's, a, it's a pretty profound thing. We know that what's happening here in, in Philippi is that there's this disagreement. There are issues within the church. We, we know that Euodia and Syntyche have this this thing going on where they are turned against each other and it's spread throughout the whole church. And apparently, Paul has to say to them, you know, do, at the beginning of chapter 2, do everything uh, without conceit or pride. And so their pride and their conceit is blinding them to the reality of the community that is the church, that is the body of Christ, that is this work that God is doing there in Philippi. And so they're very easily being torn apart. So, Claire, you can, you can put my notes up there. So, so what does it mean then when he says at the very beginning to do everything as the ESV says without grumbling or disputing? Right? Because we hear that and we think, well, what does that mean? You know, the, the fact is, am I just supposed to go through life with a stiff upper lip? Am I just supposed to take it all the time? Is that, is that what's supposed to happen here? Well, the words for grumbling and disputing have, have some very specific uh, uh, applications and, and, and basically what they do is they, they, they color, they shape the way we think about each other and ultimately the way we think about God. So that what we do is we look around us, we look at the people who are around us, the people that we, that we are in community with, and we begin to complain against them. Uh, in the Old Testament, we read about the people of God murmuring, right? That's the same thing that's happening here. It's, it's as if... The church in Philippi is mirroring what happened in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, where the people are complaining and they're murmuring against one another, and they they're they're at each they're at each other and they're at their leadership, and it's it's a very difficult thing. And so, as they go about this, they 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 end up even disputing, and the word there for disputing indicates that the things have gotten so bad in the church that there may be some people, Christians, fellow believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, who have disputes with one another, and they're settling them by suing each other in secular law courts. It's an ugly, ugly thing, and it it is breaking, tearing at the heart of the Apostle Paul as, as he sees that happen. Well, I want to be clear about something here uh, about this, that this grumbling and disputing does not. There are a couple of things that it doesn't mean. And one is this. Listen, you you have every right and every reason. And in fact, you should. Talk to God and say, I don't understand why. You should have every reason and every right as hard things happen, as difficult things come your way to say to God, I don't understand. 
You have every right and every reason as you struggle to say, uh, uh, what are you doing? Help me. You have every right and every reason as, as you struggle with difficulties to say, Lord, you're so good. You love us. This, this is so hard. This week has been a hard week uh, for uh, West End Presbyterian Church. Very hard. We struggled mightily as a session, as a group of elders, to try to figure out what, how to respond, whether we should uh, cancel, uh, uh, suspend uh, in-person worship for a time. At one point, as we were struggling with that, there were three of our community very sick, very sick at MCV, VCU Medical Center. As on the staff of the church, we prayed and we said, you know, God, what, what is happening here? I loved Emily's children's sermon. The mercies of the Lord are indeed new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Of course, those words are spoken and written in the smoking ruin of Jerusalem amidst the cries of the dying and the starving as the Babylonians destroy the city. It's kind of where we are in some ways. There is no reason and no spiritual command not to lament and to cry out to God about why. But there is a limit, and that limit is this. Our crying out to God never goes to the place where we say, God, because this happens, you don't love us. Our lamenting, our questioning crosses a line of hardness and ugliness when we say the temptations and the struggles of the life that you have called us to walk through causes us to say we are not a part of your family. We are not your children. You do not love us. So it's a pretty—it's—it's it's a very hard-hitting thing for us to come at that because the the fact is for many of us that we like to live in this place where we want to challenge that, and God's chest is big enough for you to beat on it, but there is no place among the people of God where we might grumble against one another so much that we might doubt the fact that the work of God is actually happening here, or that, or that. God no longer loves his church. We're in a hard place. Don't know. I, I mean, I imagine we, we will have to make weekly decisions about how we will meet together going forward. We will have to make decisions about how we're going to love each other and care for each other and in, the, in the midst of a fraught and difficult and fractious time. But in the midst of all of that, one of the things that we know in our questioning is, is that God still loves his church. And so he says, you know, do, to, to make sure that in our lamenting we don't go so far as to cast aspersions upon the character of God by saying that he doesn't love us. And when he goes on to say that you might be blameless and innocent as children of God. We have a robust theology of depravity and sin in this church. <laughs> 
uh, we, we know uh, that believers, even though they are being shaped into the image of Christ and that the spirit of God is alive in us and we know that this is the reality of who we are, we also know that, that much of the world, much of the flesh and much, much of the devil wars against us is at work in us. And that we, none of us have arrived. And so to hear that what Paul says is, don't grumble against God. Don't, don't complain in such a way that you tear the fabric of the unity of the body of Christ. That we go on to say, and therefore you should be blameless and innocent as, as, as children of God. What does that mean? Well, what, what that means is this. It doesn't mean that you're sinless. It doesn't mean that you're perfect. But what it does mean is, is that we exist as a church in a world and people and entities are watching us. They're seeing us. They're looking at how we talk to one another. They're looking at how we speak to one another. They're looking at how we treat one another. They're looking at how we function in this world where we are, as, as he says here, lights in the darkness. How does that happen? How does that work? What does that look like? And so what it means is, is that we don't give outsiders a, those who are looking at the church, a reason to say, see, they're just like the world. There, there's, there's no Jesus there. There's no Holy Spirit there. There's no good news there. They don't love each other. They're not compelled by any sacrifice. They're not compelled by the cross of Christ. They're not, they're not compelled by, by anything. They're just like us. And so what he wants to, uh, us to be able, what, what he wants the world to be able to see is, see that church. See that congregation. I don't believe a thing that they say, but I sure am glad they're here. Look at how they love. Look at how they serve. You know, it's, it's, uh, that's, uh, lingual quote at the beginning of the, of the, uh, order of worship is a, is a great thing that he's, that uh, I think Paul is getting at here. We draw people to Christ not by loudly discrediting what they believe, even though what they believe is a lie, or by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. And so when the church tears at itself and acts and resolves conflict and, and, and approaches the, its creator, its father, its lover in, in, in this way, the world can say, you're no different. You're just like us. And so this is a pretty, pretty uh, hard-hitting thing that Paul is getting at because what he's saying is, listen, you lose your distinctiveness when you begin to look like the culture and the world around you. You lose your distinctiveness when, when you're being shaped by that. And, and what he means here is as, as we're no longer, we're, we, we may be holding out a word of truth uh, to the world around us, but that word of truth has no power and no oomph in it because it hasn't changed us first. Because it hasn't softened us first. It hasn't assured us of our adoption. It hasn't assured us that, that we belong. It hasn't assured us that we are brothers and sisters. And therefore, that shapes how we talk and how we act and how we love and how we serve and how we sacrifice. Right? I mean, it's a pretty great thing to see here that he calls us children of God. Right? 
One of the things that is true of us and one of the things that would be certain of, 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 the, of, the, of the church of Jesus Christ is that, that one thing would, we would know as we love one another and as we struggle with one another to love one another, as we struggle to hold forth the word of the gospel, the, the word of the love of God to the world around us is this, that we are confident that even as we struggle and even as things are hard and even as things are difficult and even as there are temptations and strains that would tear us apart, We are certain of this. We are adopted children of God and nothing changes that. And because of that, we have this confidence, we have this settled understanding that yes, there are difficulties and yes, there are hard things and yes, there are disagreements, but we belong to him and he belongs to us. And nothing changes the fact that I am my father's child. Nothing changes the fact that you are my brother, my sister. We belong together because we we belong to him, right? It's it's an interesting thing to to see how those those things interplay with one another. And it's even more uh, profound for us to to unpack how that shapes us. When uh, we were getting ready to plant West End uh, 27, almost 28 years ago now, we went to a conference, and every night at this conference, uh, uh, they, would, they would get church planters together, and a group of, of the elders there, teachers there, would lay hands on us and pray over us. And um, we were there. Marty and I were there. We had one of our kids with us, our, our baby guy. He was, he was just six weeks old at the time. Um, he's a first lieutenant in the Army now, and... Um, so I was a little nervous about this because I didn't, I didn't know exactly what was going to happen here, but they called us and told us to go to this prayer meeting one night. And so uh, we went. One of the things that you need to know about guys who plant churches and church planters are they're very twitchy and they're very nervous because they're taking a risk. And, and, and it doesn't seem like it. When you look around, you see new churches springing up because you think, well, that's, that's easy. New churches all over the place, the the, the, the the reality is the vast majority of churches that start fail, just like businesses in America. They fail. They don't make it. So I was pretty twitchy. I was pretty nervous. And so we went and they asked us, you know, they asked us all these questions, confess your sins before they lay hands on us. So I told them, I'm like, I'm really worried that, you know, this is going to fail and we're going we're gonna to be on, on food stamps and we're not going to be able to pay our mortgage and we're going to, you know, we're... This is going to fall apart. People are going to hate us. And Marty, what are you afraid of? I'm afraid it's going to be a success. And I'm afraid I'll never see my husband again. And I'm like, well, you know, obviously ignore that. That's an invalid fear. Only pray about mine, right? So they laid hands on us and they began to pray. And one of the things that one of the guys kept praying, a friend of mine, I've known him a long time, as he was praying, he's like, he kept saying, Father, they're your kids. Now, I am a theological snob, and so when I hear stuff like that, I begin to think, wait, can you say that? Is that okay to say? I don't, I don't pray like that, but I'm really glad that they prayed like that because the, the fact of the matter is, that's, that's what it means. We're his kids, right? And I think about that today when I think about my own children. You know, I've got one that's about to turn 30 this year. He's still my kid. 
And I still have those kind of that warmth of affection and memories and, and this bond that we have that is unbreakable, even as he does things and says things that, and we frustrate the daylights out of each other like any family does. He's my kid. He'll always be my kid. That certainty, that assurance is what, what Paul is building on to say, look, you know, because of this identity, because that you have been adopted into the very family of God, you, you, the, the tearing at this fabric and this grumbling against him, this, this challenging his love is such an ugly thing. And he's going to go on to show us how even more ugly that is, because I think when Paul writes this, he has this sermon in mind that Moses preached there on uh, 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 the plains of Moab as they got ready to go into the, the promised land. At the end of his life, Moses gathers the people together. And this is, this is 40 years now after they've come out of, uh, out of Egypt, and he preaches this sermon. And he says this, Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like showers upon the herb. Sounds like he's about to say, you're okay and I'm okay. Right? It's just so sweet. It's like the sweet dew and the rain. Right? For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. Next slide. The rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. And then he says this about the parents and the grandparents who are listening to the sermon. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. See, Paul is saying here that the world is the crooked and twisted generation. Moses is saying, not you guys. Those of you who saw the mighty hand of God put those plagues on Egypt, deliver you from slavery, walk you through on dry land through the Red Sea, watch the dead bodies of your enemies wash up on shore. And then when you got there, you said, we don't like the food. We don't like the water. God brought us out here to kill us. It was better to be in Egypt. There's some grumbling and complaining, isn't there? Right? Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is he not your father who created you, who made you and established you? See, what Paul understands and what Moses understood is, is the very glory and the very reputation of our God is at stake here, right? And so, so it's, not, it, it, it's, just, it's such a powerful thing for us to, to think about that what, what Paul is saying here is, listen, listen, the Old Testament people of God, the people who saw the mighty works of God, they failed because what God had always intended by drawing a people to himself was not just to save some people or just to have some pets or whatever, but he wanted to draw a people to himself to be a light to the nations. That, that in this community of people, the work and the spirit of God, the grace of God, the power of God, the spirit of God would be alive and at work in such a way that it would shine a light to the nations. 
And that's what he's getting at here, that, that, you, that we are to be blameless, innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. The church is to be this light that shines the, the truth of the gospel in the midst of darkness, right? And so he wants the church to do and be what Israel failed to do and to be. Next, next slide, please, Claire. And so he says we're to shine as lights. And we shine as lights by holding the fast to the, tr- the, the, the word of truth. That Jesus came, that he lived, that he died, that, that our faith is centered upon a person and the very action of God for us. And that in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, it is not a grasping after power. It is not a grasping after our own rights that shines as a light in the world. But what it is is holding forth that we say to the world, we serve one who came as a servant. We know one who came to sacrifice, who died for his enemies. We are marked by that. And that is what is the light in the darkness of this world. The week before Christmas, I was with my son and my friend. We were out in the country late one evening, and I had heard, had read in the newspaper that during that period of time that the planet Jupiter and the planet Saturn would appear very close together in the night sky, in the southwest sky so close together that on this particular night when we were there, that if you hold your hand up with your little finger like that, that the two lights would be blotted out by the end of your little finger. So I wanted to see if that was true. So I went out and I waited, and it was just as the sun was setting, it was getting dark, and there was no light in the sky, no light in the sky. And I thought, well, this is hype. I mean, this is, I'm gonna, it's freezing out here. I'm going to go back. Inside, and then suddenly there were the lights. And it was just captivating to stand, to look at this vast vault of a sky, darkening quickly, no other light in the sky. But you could look up and you could see those two lights together. We had binoculars, and through the binoculars, you could even make out in a faint way the rings around Saturn. In the midst of all that darkness... In the midst of all that that seemed empty and dead, there were these tiny, tiny lights shining. And it was what we were looking at. It was what we were captivated by. It was what we were focused on. The hope of the world is the word of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed and lived in a group of fallen human beings. The hope of the world is not in who wins an election in Georgia on Tuesday. The hope of the world is not who gets the most electoral college votes on Wednesday. The hope of the world, the very glory of God is manifest in this people. We read that text about a light on a hill, the light, the, the city on the hill, that light that shines for, for the nations is not America. It is the church of Jesus Christ struggling, suffering, 
challenged, sinning still, and yet bearing witness to the reality that we are the very children of God because of the grace of God to us in Jesus Christ, our older brother. That the cross is the power to bring about change. That what we proclaim is a message of reconciliation that crosses every barrier. That what Jesus is doing by renewing us is making one new man. One new humanity. And that humanity heart beats with a focus upon the goodness and the grace of God manifest to us by this one who did not account equality with God as a thing to be grasped but emptied himself taking the form of a servant and dying for his enemies you see when Jesus said you're the light of the world a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's what Paul is appealing to in this church that is fraught with the division. And then Paul says this very personal thing where he says, so that in the day of Christ, when he stands in judgment, when Jesus returns, when Jesus calls him out of his grave, that he'd be proud, not in a fleshly way, but that his heart would beat with joy because he would see the effect of the preaching and the work of God in the life of his people because they did not allow sin and death to tear them apart but they bore witness to his glory my uh, systematic uh, theology professor in seminary had a lot of ties to Scotland and he used to tell us that in some of these rural churches in Scotland where they had cemeteries that they would often bury the pastors facing the opposite way from uh, the people in the church so that on judgment day on the resurrection day that when they rose from their graves, the first thing they would see would be the faces of the people that they'd served and that they would see the fruit of their work and the lives of these resurrected souls. Friends, this is the hope of the world, that Jesus is alive and he calls us to resurrection life right now, right today so that we bear witness to that glory, so that a world that is mired in darkness and and death would see the light and run to it. Run to it. As Jesus would draw to himself those who are caught in darkness and death. The power of the gospel raises the dead, and it holds people like us Together in witness, it holds people, selfish people, self-centered, self-compelled people together because our God, our Father, loves us and loves us in a sacrificial way that changes everything about us. Let's pray. Lord, as we think through these things, we confess that there is so much uh, to struggle against, so much that uh, tears at our hearts and our souls. Teach us to lament and to teach us to trust. Uh, Teach us uh, 
how uh, not to be people who murmur, but people who trust. Lord, I pray for those of us who uh, have despised one another, who have uh, grumbled about one another, have even grumbled at you, that you would be gracious to forgive us. Lord, do not let us become like that generation that hardened their hearts. After seeing the great deliverance that you did uh, in bringing them out of slavery, how they hardened against you. Lord, keep us soft towards you, soft towards one another. Do not allow that to happen uh, in our hearts and lives. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So let's confess our sins by using uh, this uh, confession based on Psalm 5. Pray with me. Hear our words and our groanings, O Lord. Give attention to our cry for mercy. You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. You abhor the bloodthirsty and deceitful. Forgive us, good Lord. We have sinned against you and our neighbor. We have sought to justify ourselves before you. We have attempted to atone for our own sins and punish the sins of others. And so we have boasted in sin and self. By your mercy alone, by the abundance of your steadfast love, may we enter your house. Because of your Son, O Lord, let us find refuge in you. Take away our sins and let us ever sing for joy. Cover us with your favor as with a shield for the sake of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Brothers and sisters, as I said in the sermon, we have a robust theology of depravity because we have an even more robust theology of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Hear these words of encouragement. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me just read that again. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give light to your life, to your mortal bodies. Amen.